Hello and welcome back to Curiously Polar, the show about all things very north and very south. And uh, we had a bit of a break, but Henry is back. It's all your fault. Of course, always. <laughs> <laughs> so, Glad to be back. <laughs> so, um, um, before we get into this episode, uh, which is the kickoff of a little series, um, let's. Let, what what did you do in the break? Why why did we have a break? Um, because I was traveling, I was working. <laughs> you were working, right? In a, in a ship in the Arctic, on a ship in yeah. the Arctic. Yeah, I started uh, the summer in uh, Svalbard and just went around there on a, a small ship. Then I changed to a slightly larger ship and just went from Greenland through Baffin Bay um, through the Northwest Passage to Alaska, which was a quite amazing end of the season. Expeditions. Yes, beautiful awesome. expeditions, beautiful people, <sighs> I met envy a lot you. of amazing, a lot of amazing people, really I great. envy you. Um, so, but we are back with uh, some interesting content because uh, we just, uh, oh, not we, you just had the um, opportunity to be on the Arctic Circle Assembly Conference in Reykjavik. T tell us a mm -hmm. bit about what that, uh, what that is. Um, the Arctic Circle Assembly got um, founded by the Icelandic, or by the former Icelandic president, um, Oliver Ragnar-Grimsson. And um, it's basically a forum where everybody who is interested in Arctic topics can just come and talk and listen um, to... Uh, sessions to panels to um, keynote speeches about um, the current status of the Arctic. It's a forum where a huge amount of exchange is happening on all kind of levels. It starts with a search and rescue operation that goes through economical um, questions. It uh, tackles indigenous people. It's basically um, the public forum um, counterpart to what the Arctic uh, Council is on a government level. Mm, okay. It's um, it's it's a very nice forum of uh, where even bigger stakeholders, big publish, um, big politicians, um, are just you know, being available, approachable for um, scientists, for interested citizens. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting, very nice forum. So uh, you were there in your uh, in your function as the representative of Curiously Polar, and you um, got to speak to some of the speakers there. Who who are we gonna hear from over the next few episodes? Um, I had the pleasure to meet some very interesting characters, and um, I already had a plan to interview uh, Peter Wathams and just go to Cambridge and uh, talk with him about sea ice. But apparently he was um, attending the uh, conference and I just met him in the um, auditorium, uh, just asked him if uh, he would be available and we just sneaked into a corner and just had a, a nice little chat. Um, I met Anja Sommerfeld, who is the um, head coordinator of the largest research project currently going on in the Arctic region called uh, Mosaic. It was it uh, was uh, here in Germany. It was quite big in the news. Yes, I hope it's uh, quite big in the news all over the globe because it is a huge, a very huge project. It's the largest research project in that scale ever, and um, it's tackling a very interesting and important topic. And we're going to talk about that in the next episode. Um, really, really interesting. That's um, 
it's a project by heart. Um, I was really glad I had the chance to uh, talk to Anya. Um, then I met uh, Sara Oldsvik, which um, is working for UNICEF in uh, Greenland and uh, talked about uh, indigenous people's view on climate change, traditional knowledge um, transfer and uh, all those kind of things with her. And then we also will tackle the keynote speech um, of that assembly, which was held by uh, John Kerry, the um, US American, uh, who's campaigning for becoming president again. Um, he held a very dramatic, very interesting, alarming speech. Um, and we're just gonna have one episode just um, about that speech. So pretty amazing. Okay, so little series coming up, starting today with uh, Peter Wadhams. And uh, bef before we start listening to that, um, <laughs> I just have to say, it was really challenging recording circumstances because this uh, this assembly took place in the Harpa, and uh, which is the big, um, well, it's a concert house pretty much, right? It's a, a big symphony hall in uh in Reykjavik in Iceland and uh if you've been there you know that it is pretty much a big building made from glass and concrete and uh that also dictates a bit of the acoustics inside so uh, uh yeah you you'll hear we'll we'll do the best to make it sound good um do you want to say anything before we dive into your interview Oh, yeah, sure. I would love to introduce Peter. Um, Peter Wadhams is like one of the gurus when it comes to sea ice research. Um, he's professor of ocean physics and the head of the polar ocean physics group in um, Cambridge, in the University of Cambridge. He has led over 40 polar field expeditions. So he knows the field. He, is, uh, he has records of the development of sea ice that dates back further than most of the other researchers. So that's really interesting. He's also um, author of uh, some very interesting books. His most recent one is A Farewell to Ice, which is quite an alarming way of, um, yeah, of, of, of trying to um, yeah, make this this topic of the, uh, of the declining sea ice. Um, to raise the awareness of it. Exactly. Yes, to just give give an uh, give an impression and 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 really make that something that's um, conscious in our everyday lives. And he uses wordings which makes him quite um, disputable. So um, within the scientific community, there are a lot of people who say this is over alarming. When he talks about um, an ice-free Arctic, he had some. Some uh, predictions. He said in 2016 the Arctic will be ice free in 2019, and never um, did that happen. But for me, from my point of view, what he is trying to do is to wash off all the polish and all the political correctness of um, trying to deal with different perspectives and different um, backgrounds. He's just um, using his data, he just um, evaluated through uh, his research and is just publishing it and just saying the data we have right now they are very clear and we have to do something and what, what politics is doing is not enough 
and by that he's choosing a very alarming uh, wording, which is definitely debatable. But his position is um, is very uh, stable. So his his uh, research career is quite um, yeah, quite amazing. He has um, as much experience as probably no one else in that scene. And we talk a little bit how he went into uh, CI's research and what his thoughts, his currently uh, current thoughts are. And um, yeah, just let's have a listen to that. You're working on CI's research for over 40 years. Yes. Um, what's your your what's your way into that research, and what's your main observation throughout those many years? Well, my way into um, Arctic ice research was really when I started in oceanography as a graduate student. Um, I went on my first oceanographic voyage was um, around the North and South America in 1969-70. That was the called the Hudson 70 expedition. It's a Canadian voyage. And it's, it's the, in fact, it's still the only time a ship has sailed around North and South America. So it took us down to the Antarctic, first of all, from Nova Scotia. And we worked in the Antarctic Peninsula area. And, uh, uh, and then up through the Pacific to the Arctic. And we, we came through Northwest Passage. So, uh, so it gave me two doses of ice at both ends, and that made me decide I was really interested in sea ice, and I wanted to do that for my PhD. So I went and did that at the Scott Polar Institute, and have stayed in that area ever since. And uh, it's, um, in fact, one of my very first experiences of doing sea ice research was coming here to in Iceland to in 1971 to the very first uh, International Sea Ice Conference. So it was, well, this was before this building was built, but uh, the, the Icelandic National Research Council decided that sea ice was important and there should be an international conference on it. Uh, and they hadn't had, well, there had been a little one in 1958, but this was the first really serious sea ice conference. So everybody in the world who was working on sea ice came to that conference. Uh, that, and that meant about 90 people. That was the entire world population of sea ice researchers. So I got to meet them all, and so I felt myself part of a, a real community of scientists, except that community was then about a hundredth as large as it is today. Uh, but it was still very fascinating, and it seemed an appropriate place to have a sea ice conference, uh, here, mainly because Iceland was very concerned that in 1971 doesn't seem possible today but in, then the sea ice was actually advancing in the, East, in the East Greenland region and there was a fear that Icelandic ports would get actually iced up again and that would be economically disastrous so that the fear was advancing sea ice then because now the fear is retreating sea ice. Indeed. What's, what's the, the main fascination on, on sea ice? Why is it so fascinating to you? Well it's, it's, it's because it's it's a solid material that sits on the ocean. So um, you, if you really, first of all, love the ocean, you like to be out on it, that's fine. Sea ice is, is part of the ocean. But also the fact that it's a solid means it has an enormous climatic effect. I mean, we hear about this, of course, here at this meeting. But in, it's bound to be very, very important because it, it's not... If, if sea ice warms up or the climate warms up, 
the sea ice changes state and it, it goes away, it melts. But in, in melting it changes all of the balances of heat between the ocean and the atmosphere and it allows global temperatures to warm up much more rapidly because it's not there to, to act as a kind of global um, uh, air conditioning system which it does at the moment. So it's a really fragile material and it's, there's not much of it and if it goes away, which it's doing, it'll have a huge impact on global climate, much more impact than any other change that's happening on the, on the planet. So it makes it really important. It's the centre for, for climate change research has to be what, what sea ice is doing, how do we stop it from doing what it's doing and get it to do something else. That's, that's one of the biggest challenges. You're one of the more alarming voices in that climate change debate um, in, in the scientific community. Um, I've heard and read a lot about um, criticism about um, raising such alarming voice while everybody else tries to be more conservative with the outcome. You, you've uh, proposed and see an, an ice-free Arctic uh, ocean for 2016 and 2019. And, um, a lot of criticism is about uh, those um, alarmism won't help in the perception of uh, what needs to be done. Mm. What, what's your um, take on that? Well, first of all, um, I suppose what I said must have seemed alarmist, but now it doesn't. The mainstream was caught up, and the mainstream is saying there's a climate emergency and the Arctic sea ice is disappearing, so it's, it's no longer alarmism. And the, the book I wrote about that, um, Farewell to Ice, is... Uh, is now mainstream and uh, so that's one thing is that the, the world has caught up not that they will acknowledge for one moment that they've caught up but they they have and then uh, the the other aspect of this is that um, in predicting that, that there will be an ice-free month round about now or very soon um, that may may have gone ahead of what's actually happened is that the the ice is still hanging around in in summer although it's this this year is one of the lowest ever but it's far less of alarmist than than the complacentist I suppose view of the intergovernmental panel on climate change because their models were saying that there's going to be lots of sea ice around right until the end of the century and you see their their model predictions they're completely wrong and that the, the, the reality has gone way ahead of those models. And so we, instead of kind of doing ad hominem kind of abuse of me, what they should be doing is, is ad hominem abuse of themselves for persisting with completely complacent climate models which don't bear any relation to what's actually happening and which in fact lead to inaction when... when in fact, we should be taking action because the, the idea that there's going to be lots of sea ice until the end of this century is completely ludicrous. Which is interesting because when we look at the satellite pictures, <laughs> uh, recent satellite pictures, um, we see how small the area of sea ice already is when we have the minimum mm. month um, during summer. Why is there still... There's no disagreement that sea ice um, is diminishing. Well, there is a disagreement about how fast, how quick how important that is and how 
urgent that needs to be addressed. Mm. Why is there this disagreement seeing the, the data out there? And just like going out there in the ship, yeah. you, you just see it with your bare eyes, the eyes you are surrounded by. It's not multi-year eyes anymore. It mainly is just a year old eyes. It's just really mm. young eyes going through. Well, I mean, it, the diminishing is, is in area and in volume because, as you say, it's all first-year ice now, nearly all, which is much thinner than multi-year ice, which dominated in the past. So the volume of sea ice in summer is now a, a quarter of what it was 30 years ago. And that's sea ice in the Arctic is one of the big geophysical variables on the planet. And the fact there's now only a quarter of it left should be ringing alarm bells everywhere. Uh, but it's not, and, and as you say, why? Uh, and but that, that comes into a bigger question of why are we not doing much about climate change in general? We're not doing much about sea ice, and in fact, we're, people are kind of taking playing an active role in avoiding action by saying, "Oh, it's not as bad as you think." But also, you you find the rate of warming of the planet, the rate of temperature rise, the rate of loss of water from the Greenland ice sheet and the Antarctic ice sheet, therefore the, the rate of sea level rise, all of these are increasing incredibly fast, faster than any models predict. And we should be taking all of those things very, very seriously. Um, but you find that, that we, that is to say bureaucrats, are not. Um, the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, for instance, plays down a lot of defects like the, the threat of a methane outbreak and also in their reports which say how do we um, keep global warming below 2 degrees, how do we keep it below 1.5 degrees, what they are advocating is simply lots and lots of reduction of emissions and most scientists already know that's a dead end because um, if we reduce our emissions however much we reduce them we're still going to get continued warming and we're already too warm. So reducing emissions, although it's a praiseworthy thing to do, necessary, um, it doesn't actually solve the climate problem. The only way really is to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So we have to go as fast as possible for climate carbon dioxide removal systems, air capture. And it has to be as fast as possible because the longer we leave it, the more the uh, CO2 level rises and the more heating happens before we can get a hold on it. So we're, by doing nothing, which is the present state of play, we're actually allowing a bigger catastrophe to happen before inevitably we get a hold on, on CO2 levels, which we'll have to do in the end. Um, so I think that, that the inertia of, of politicians and bureaucrats is, is really shameful. And I think it comes from fear that if they really took everything properly seriously, then they would have to be advocating such, such uh, serious actions that it might affect their, their careers, their re-election re prospects and all these things. They would rather do things in a, in a, a slow way that nobody notices so that people don't get too upset. But I think, unfortunately, that's... That's the road to disaster. Might there be uh, a perception problem still in uh, in Western communities that we still don't really understand what climate change means eventually for the life in 
let's say, Central Europe or Central mm. America. Because what I actually figure when, when we sail in uh, Arctic sea ice is that most people, for the very first time, get a visual to what climate change looks like mm. and what it does. And I, I, I see or I feel that there is still a big lack of um, comprehensible information for a broad audience mm. to understand the abstract threat of, of climate change for the daily life, or daily routines in, uh, um, yeah, in, in Western countries. Uh, yes, I think, well, firstly, everybody would like things to carry on more or less as they are because that enables you to live a quieter life. Um, but they don't appreciate that, in fact, things are changing exponentially. So when everything is changing exponentially, then you look into the past, things haven't changed very much and look as if they're going on the same forever. You look into the future and you see a cliff. Um, so that's one thing is desire to, to, to lead a quiet life, which everybody has. And, and the other is not, is not accepting that anything happens at all. Um, and we see that in, in its worst form in the United States with Trump. Um, he knows, well, maybe he knows, that climate change is a catastrophic threat, but he'd rather um, that nothing was done about it than, than that he might lose power or that the people that, that, that support him might get unhappy. Um, but that, that um, claiming that nothing is happening is, is the worst of all because claim, knowing that something's happening but, but you'd rather not do anything much about it is, is one thing. I mean, that's, that's just cowardice. But pretending that nothing's happening, that's, that's really serious criminal activity, and in this case by Trump. Because um, if you go around saying, with all the authority that the presidency of the United States gives you, which today isn't much, but it was once a lot of authority, and tell everybody um, there's nothing to worry about, nothing is happening, it's a Chinese plot, it's a, um, you don't have to do anything. And then people will say, well, the president tells me we don't have to do anything, so we won't do anything. So it, it produces uh, a whole, an excuse for doing nothing. I mean, the difference between doing something about climate change and doing nothing is that doing nothing is nicer. Um, so if you're given that choice, you'll go for doing nothing. If, if, if there's reasons given why we don't need to do anything, you'll go for not doing anything. Why should we do something drastic that... that, that costs a lot of pain and suffering when we don't need to. It's a, it's a kind of siren call, uh, let's not do anything because we're not sure really that much is happening so we don't need to do anything. It's, it, it's so difficult to fight against that and try and get something done that will save the world and it gets triply difficult if you've got a moron running the world's most powerful country saying that nothing needs to be done. It's also difficult when you talk to indigenous communities on location. When you, for example, see location, um, communities in, in northwest Greenland, close to, to Thule, or in Arctic Canada, which see climate change as a big opportunity, a big chance to develop economically their, mm. their own um, communities. And you see countries presenting themselves here on the Arctic Circle Assembly um, as a big um, yeah, as a big playground for, for new economic opportunities. 
how does that change the perception? How does that support um, or even not mm. support the, the, the fight for climate change? Well, I think there are uh, quite a lot of indigenous people here at this mm -hmm. meeting. And of course, they've recognized for a long time that the climate is changing because they have to adapt themselves to it. If, if the fish species have, have changed or if they depend on sea ice for, as a platform for hunting for polar bears or seals or whales, and that's not there anymore, um, it's a big change in their lives uh, it, and usually detrimental to their way of life. So they've been aware for a long time of what's going on. The other group that's been aware for a long time, weirdly enough, are the military. Um, when you consider the kind of utterly moronic statements by the President of the United States and then compare them with the Department of Defense in the US, the Department of Defense knows exactly what's going on because they actually run some of the most powerful computers and have some of the best uh, science, Arctic scientists who've been telling them what's going on. So for at least 20 years, they've been aware that, that the Arctic is opening up and there needs to be a big change in the way in which um, defense orients itself. So there's the Defense Department facing reality for the last 20 years, while the actual presidency doesn't face reality. So it's very strange uh, that the people who are near the coalface are actually uh, either living with climate change, like the native people, or having to really cope with climate change for some uh, important reason, like the, the military. They, they're, they're much more aware and clued up than, than the people who are, can keep themselves clear of it by having lots of air conditioning and, and pretending nothing's happening and living the life of uh, a normal a normal wealthy bureaucrat. What we also can uh, observe is that the opening Arctic starts kind of a spiral which we which we have seen already in history um, in the 60s, 70s and 80s which is um, starting kind of a, another cold war we see um, a lot of military forces are deployed uh, in, into Arctic Russia um, Trump administration has just picked up on that and is just building up a new infrastructure in Alaska as well um, not to mention the um, attempt to buy Greenland out of strategic regions of course um, you see similar developments also in Canada how does the um, opening Arctic actually changes geopolitics and is there still a way or um, a possibility to use the Arctic Council as a forum to, to still keep it a peaceful area as it is right now? Oh yes there is, I mean I think the Arctic Council does a very good job and uh, I think uh, Iceland is becoming the presidency next year, or, uh, well, it's it is already. Yeah. Um, well of course the, the most embarrassing thing for the Arctic Council was the this visit by this bloated idiot Mike Pompeo uh, to the Arctic Council. I mean, the Arctic Council are used to playing a, a, a kind of mild, constructive role in developing useful things in the Arctic, like uh, search and rescue and uh, regulations for oil drilling to minimise environmental disruption. It's all um, environment nations who are in the Arctic combining together for doing generally good things for the environment. Harmless, you might think. Then Pompeo goes along as the US delegate and, and gives this incredible speech, and I've got it 
you can, you can read it on the State Department papers. It's the most incredible bilge I've ever seen, uh, in which he, he goes on about the fact that, that in the Northern Sea Route, because Russia is carrying Chinese cargoes in its ships going through Northern Sea Route, that means there's a, a, a military threat by China to, to Russia, to, 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 to America, which can only be met by by militarization of the Arctic, building lots of uh, uh, icebreaker, military icebreakers, nuclear submarines, holding vast NATO exercises, all because Russia's carrying Chinese cargoes in the Northern Sea Route, which is, uh, one would have thought, is a, a constructive thing. And in fact, at the meeting this morning, there was a whole session talking about the Northern Sea Route, transport of LNG in the Northern Sea Route, and there was no concern about some countries are evil and some are good. It's just that trade is good. Uh, so that's what is the normal view. It's the view of the Arctic Council. And then you've got this Pompeo just completely disrupting this and out of utter ignorance as well. Um, and if you read his, his intervention with the Arctic Council, he was boasting about how the first American the first people to the North Pole were Americans um, using snow plows. And he thought, how can you get to the North Pole on a snow plow? And he meant snowmobiles, but he didn't know what the difference between a snowmobile and a snow plow. And he was actually the delegate to the Arctic Ocean side, to the Arctic uh, Council, with all the advice of the State Department behind him if he wanted it, but he obviously didn't want it. Well, interesting was the reaction of uh, the other Arctic Council members who just tried to um, keep everything down again afterwards and just strengthen the, the, um, yeah, the cooperation of the Arctic Council members mm. still on that base and keep those kind of geopolitics out of the Arctic Council, which is kind of the the uh, key to success why the Arctic Council yes, works yeah. as successfully as it does. Mm. Well, it's, it, it's what they should have done because they're all big, all nice. But he still went in there in this clunky way. It still meant that the Arctic Council couldn't issue a bulletin or an, a statement at the end because you, you, can't, you can't have a statement where he's in it. Uh, and they should have just said, well, we don't want, we're not going to have, accept a delegate like Pompeo in, in the Arctic Council because he stands completely against everything that the Arctic Council is doing. So please send a, a rational human being next time. And, <laughs> but of course, they're too nice to say that. <laughs> That's part of diplomacy, isn't it? Well, yeah. <laughs> um, when we see the developments of the, of the sea ice and the importance for sea ice for uh, climate change, which also interconnects with the importance of the Arctic Ocean for um, the state of the other world's ocean, uh, the other oceans in the world, um, you talked about a project, about a way to restore Arctic sea ice. Can you talk, uh, tell a little bit more about that idea? Um, yes, the, well, the, I'm here sort of partly to kind of dis help Leslie feel discuss this because um, the, the, the foundations now which are, are working very hard to, to, to raise funds for um, carbon, cap carbon capture for, for 
taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. And there's a big one in the States, the Center, uh, Foundation for Carbon Restoration, for Climate Restoration. And there's one in Britain started up by Sir David King, who's the ex-science um, advisor to the government, called um, Center for Climate Repair. And in both cases, they're saying we must go for taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and this, this is what will save us, not reducing emissions, because reduced emissions still mean we warm up. And also what I should have mentioned when, when I gave my little talk was um, there's a film out about this called um, Ice on Fire by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, in which he emphasises taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere as, as the long-term solution. And uh, that's quite a brave thing to do in, in a feature film. Um, but in between times, you know, we've got to, to get the carbon dioxide level down. Then we've solved the problem. We've, we, we've done away with the greenhouse effect. But in between achieving that, which will cost a lot, and achieving nothing, which is our present situation, there's, there's a, a, a level at which we're doing a sort of sticking plaster solution. We're finding ways that can uh, increase the, the albedo of the planet, reflect more radiation, keep, keep the warming from getting out of hand. And uh, one of those is marine cloud brightening. Another one is, is, is doing something to the sea ice to, to, to increase its albedo. And that, that's what this, uh, this later discussions this afternoon are going to be about. So it's a um, whole tool set of um, tackling the same topic, taking carbon dioxide mm. out of the atmosphere, strengthening the albedo of, uh, yeah. of the sea ice. Because the um, the young ice, the uh, one-year-old ice, has a, a smaller albedo than multi-year ice, right? Yes, it has a smaller albedo and it disappears more quickly. So you want something that, if you can increase the albedo of the of the young of the the ice. It will last longer as well. It will last l later into the summer, and um, that will mean that it will still be around when radiation levels are their highest. So it's, it, it can have an effect on that. Modeling shows that it, it, should, it should have some effect anyway in, in move, moving the ice boundaries further forward, and that will help save, help save us from this potential carbon dioxide outbreak that might happen because of the off carbon uh, sorry methane outbreak from, from the offshore waters in the Arctic being ice free in summer and emitting methane it can save us from that it can also cool down the air over the Arctic Ocean and that means that the atmosphere moving over Greenland gets warmed up or gets cooled down rather, and that gives us a, a lower rate of of loss of water from Greenland and a lower rate of global sea level rise. So it can achieve some some definite good aims, but it's still only a stopgap. I mean, it's, it's only something that's to be done while we try and get geared up globally for carbon dioxide removal. But I, uh, it's still something that is needed, and uh, I, as shown by the fact that carbon pure emission reduction is not working. It hasn't. It hasn't had any effect at all on the rise of global CO2 levels. You look on the the uh, the map of um, global sea levels. Sorry, global 
global uh, CO2 levels measured at Mauna Loa Observatory on Hawaii, it's exponentially increasing and it continues to exponentially increase every single climate agreement, every statement by the IPCC that we have to do something has, has actually had no effect whatever on the growth of, of CO2. So it's happening, uh, it's inexorable and showing that we are in fact powerless as Greta Thunberg said, you know, we're doing nothing and um, we either do something really drastic, which nobody seems ready to do, or we do something different, uh, like um, increase the albedo of, of ice and snow or suck CO2 out of the air. We have, those are things that are, can be done, even though the human race is too stupid to and greedy and selfish to actually reduce its emissions. You can compensate for human stupidity by technological means. Right? That's, that's what you mean by geoengineering or, or carbon capture. How far is that process of, um, of a possible methane outburst um, already developed? Is there, we can see that permafrost starts melting mm. all over the Arctic. We've seen huge fires this summer. We've seen plenty of fires the past years um, during summer in the Arctic region. Is that process already underway? Um, what's the status? Well, uh, yes, in fact, on the news only yesterday, um, there's a Russian expedition. This is a group that's been working for several years in the East Siberian Sea, north of, of Siberia, and finding every time they go to the Arctic, more and more methane plumes coming out into the atmosphere. So the, the amount of methane being emitted from the sediment under, under this ice-free ice seas is going up all the time and this year seems to be the worst of all and they so the report that's come in and it's plastered all over the papers shows huge plumes of methane going straight into the atmosphere and, and increasing the, the uh, uh, global warming rate in, uh, by that. And the effect is much more devastating than carbon dioxide, or is it 23 times? Yes, per molecule it's 23 times as, as the strength of CO2 so it's almost if you can if you can isolate these plumes it's almost worth flaring them um, and burning burning them because you're converting their methane into co2 so it's much less powerful an effect but uh, methane is terrible stuff and uh, the fact that it's now coming out of the seabed in the arctic is, is really worrying and what kind of effects could or what, what could be done to, to stop that? Because taking uh, CO2 out of the atmosphere, strengthening the albedo of sea ice, mm. doesn't really pay into, into that uh, methane problem. No, that's, that's true. And I, just, I simply don't know. I mean, I, I've looked at this problem for a long time and it's in my book, A Farewell Twice. <laughs> uh, and but there isn't a solution that I can see that um, unless we can bring back the Arctic sea ice so that it cools down the coastal waters and therefore the, the seabed stops thawing, then that would be one way. Um, but actually getting at the methane and trying to get rid of it in some way, um, I don't know how to do that. Um, and it may be that the oil industry does, weirdly enough. I mean, they, they do fracking. You might This might be a candidate for some kind of variation of fracking take the co take the methane out 
of the sediment before it comes up into the atmosphere. So it could be that there could be a an alliance, a strange alliance with the oil industry here to, to try and deal with this methane before it, it actually ruins our atmosphere. Thanks a lot. Okay, yeah. Um, it's alarming. I mean, that's pretty obvious. It's it's a lot. Um, what what um, Peter does is he is uh, very passionate about his research and he's very passionate about um, doing something with the research and coming to, to a conclusion and make sure that everybody understands the urgency of the results of the research. There is no debate about the um, human-induced climate change. There is no debate about a sea ice decline. There are debates about how fast it declines, um, when we will have a, um, an ice-free Arctic, but there's no debate that it's happening. And so there, he there's, just there's debate about the there's debate about the uh, what? No, there, there's debate about the when, but not a debate about the what. Exactly. And he just wants to make sure that we consider this the most urgent topic of our times, that we um, execute some actions. And by that, he's using his his approach. <laughs> and I actually really feel with him. I am yeah. I'm really glad that we had the chance to talk. Okay. So that was it with uh, Peter Wathams. We will be back in a week from now with a second interview from the Arctic Circle Assembly here on Curiosity Polar with Anja Sommerfeld about the Mosaic Expedition, uh, which is, yeah, as you said, truly, truly uh, an amazing feat that they are doing there following the footsteps of uh, Fritz of uh, Nansen. Um, but this one is bigger. <laughs> Let's put it this way. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll slightly. be back in a slightly. We'll be back in a week. And uh, if you want to reach us in the meantime, go to curiouslypolar.com. You have uh, ways to contact us there or follow us on Twitter at curiouslypolar. Uh, talk to you in a week. Thank you and take care.